Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, podcast listeners. It's getting down to the end of summer, but today we have a fantastic show for you. Our guest launched his investment advisory service back in the 1980s and just sold it a few years ago to NASDAQ. He's an author. He's written books. On top of that, he's been a regular guest on TV. He has something like 600 podcasts. OG podcast host. Frequently speaks to audiences worldwide on topics related to the stock market, technical analysis, Relative strength and momentum investing. We're excited he's joining us today. Welcome to the show, Tom Dorsey. Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Tom, you're in Richmond, Virginia. I, I feel a little sorry for you because I remember the summers on the East Coast were hot and sweaty and gross. And so I'm uh, I'm here in the AC in, in Los Angeles. But I want to talk about a lot today. But I thought we'd take it back, kind of like the Allman Brothers, back where it all began, go back to some of your origins. And as you started your career, I thought it was really interesting because in a number of your interviews and publications, you've said before that almost all of it dates back to you reading a book. Could you, could you yeah. give us a little insight into what this book was and how it kind of changed your trajectory forever? Well, the interesting thing about that is the way life is. You know, you think back a number of years, different roads that you came across. Did you take them? Did you not take them? Another road you may have taken would, you know, maybe you'd, you'd own a restaurant today. You know, you never know. There are ships passing in the night all the time. And this is one of those things, such a low probability that happened. It dates back to when I was a stockbroker at Merrill Lynch back in the mid-1970s. Long story short, after my first year as a broker, I realized that I needed to be an expert at something in this business if I was going to succeed. And options were new. They had debuted a couple of years earlier. They were a new product for us as stockbrokers. That's what we were called back then. We weren't advisors. We were stockbrokers. And I chose options. And I learned options on weekends with a legal pad and a pencil. And I'm leading up to where this all happened. Later at the end of 1970s, Wheat First Securities offered me an opportunity to come over to their company and develop and manage their first option strategy department. So I did that. Well, the first person that I hired, what's the probability of this? The first person I hired brought with him a book written by A.W. Cohen in 1947 called The Three-Point Reversal Method of Point-and-Figure Stock Market Trading. And he said, Tom, I'd like you to read this paperback. You'll understand how I think. You'll understand the operating system in my mind when I come to you with a stock or sector or the markets, And I said, fine, I'll be happy to do that. So I took that book to Virginia Beach that weekend with my wife. And I remember laying in bed and opening it up and reading the first paragraph of the introduction. And my life profoundly changed. And Meb, if you've ever had an epiphany in your life, you'll know what I mean. Because that second I knew why I was here on earth and what I had to do the rest of my life. 
And that was to teach this methodology to my brothers and sisters. Now, here's what happened. I hadn't even learned it yet. But that first paragraph of the introduction brought me back to the most important course that I had in the university was Econ 101. And I never once thought that that had anything to do with the stock market because all we did was sell research. We sold fundamental research. If the research department had a, a rank number one on it, then you went ahead and sold it because that was supposed to be a good company. And that was indicative of a stock that was likely to rise. Well, that wasn't the case. And when I read this first paragraph, it brought me back to Econ 101, and in particular, the irrefutable law of supply and demand. And I thought to myself, my God, I have arrived. If there's a holy grail of investing, this is it. Because in the end, no matter how you look at it, it's the irrefutable law of supply and demand that causes all price change. If there are more buyers and sellers willing to sell, price must rise. If there are more sellers than buyers willing to buy, price must decline. If buying and selling is equal, price must remain the same. There's nothing else. You can send that to MIT and have it macerated and put a square root over the top of it, but that's the end of it, the irrefutable law of supply and demand. And all of a sudden that night, the clouds on Wall Street cleared. I understood Wall Street for exactly what it was. I understood also all my friends and all the people I worked with did not have this piece of the equation that they used in their investment process. And I knew that I had to embark and spend my life doing it. And I've done exactly that, Meb, since that night. That's exactly what I have done since then. And that led to Dorsey Wright and Associates. So you, you famously have talked about educating seventh graders on, on kind of some of the processes you know, involved. And you said that they could understand it in about 30 minutes to an hour. Maybe walk us through, I think a lot of our listeners may not be so familiar with, they've probably heard momentum before, or trend following, or why don't you tell us a little bit about relative strength slash point figure charting? What, what's, yeah. what, what does this mean? Give us, a, give us the overview. Well, point figure charting was created in the early 1900s. Charles Dow created this methodology in the late 1800s, and it was called figuring back then. And what he did is as a stock rose in price, let's say from 30 to 35, he would write in the text on chart paper, he would write in the boxes, 30, 31, 32, 33, 34, 35. And then when the stock pulled back, because they go up and down, they, they move up, they pull back, they move up, they pull back. When it would pull back, he would shift columns and reverse the order. So at 35, let's say the stock fell back to 31, he would shift columns and then write 34, 33, 32, 31, and so forth. As the stock rose again, he would shift columns and write the figures or the price of the stock in the box. Well, early 1900s, they looked at this and said, you know, it's a little difficult to see the up and down parts of this chart. Let's make X's represent the stock rising. Let's make O's represent the stock declining. And it hasn't changed one iota since that day. And all it is is a compilation of X's and O's. As the stock rises in price, you put X's in the chart. When the stock stops rising in price and supply takes over and starts moving downward, you change columns and write O's. And what happened was Charles Dow realized there were some patterns that had a tendency to repeat themselves. So when you think about physics, things in motion tend to stay in motion until acted upon by an opposite force. Plain and simple, basic physics. Well, what happens with stocks? Stocks are in motion. When demand is in control, stocks stay in motion. Stocks rise in price until at some point, supply begins to take over. 
where they're acted upon by an opposite force. So supply begins to come in, it overtakes the demand level, and a stock begins to fall back in price. So what point and figure is simply a logical, organized way of recording this imbalance between supply and demand. Nothing else, nothing more, nothing less. That's why the kids at, at Gates Elementary School here in Richmond learned it in 40 minutes. They could pick out good and bad charts in 40 minutes. That's all it took, seventh graders. That's how simple this is. When you think about relative strength, that's something that we knew was very important early on. Now, back in the early days, we used to take Chartcraft books, and we would get monthly books, hundreds and thousands of stocks in there. And the second you got the book, it was outdated. So you had to update the charts by hand. Relative strength charts, we were able to do maybe 200 in a week because the way you do a relative strength chart is divide one thing by another. So if I want to compare the price of Coca-Cola to the price of Pepsi-Cola, Coca-Cola is the numerator, Pepsi-Cola is the not denominator, or reverse those if you wish, but let's leave it at Coke-Pepsi. And you draw that little horizontal line and you put a dot over the top and you put a dot o- uh, underneath of the line and that any fourth grader would say that's division. So I'm going to take the price of Pepsi and I'm going to divide it into the price of Coke and that yields a number. So let's say Coke was at 100 and Pepsi was at 50. Pepsi goes into Coke two times. That number is two. We would then just add another zero to it to make it easier to chart. And that's how you get your relative straight chart. So, so the X's and O's then represent that relative change, not the price of the stock. The chart looks the exact same, but it's long-term in nature. Signals can last two to two and a half years. So relative strength for us was extremely important. And we could do by hand, maybe 200 in a week. Today, we do 15 million overnight. We compare everything in the world from Indonesia to Malaysia to IBM to everything you can think of. You know, it's funny. And one of the things I love about you talking about finding this book, I mean, Warren Buffett talks a lot about value investing, which is totally separate, but where you're either inoculated or you're not. And you know, hearing you talk about this, I've always been a momentum and trend guy. But it's funny because the academics in my world, I read all these academic papers and they talk about momentum or relative strength and they always reference a academic paper by Jagadish and Titman, as if like that was the first time people ever talked about momentum. And I always laugh because, I mean, there was books by Levy on relative strength investing in the 1960s. One of the greatest. And, and you're talking about stuff in 1900, but all the academics active like this just literally got invented in 1990 or something. And I said, you're not a historian. And the same thing for value investing. A lot of stuff's been around forever. And so, all right, so talk to me a little bit about all right, so I think people understand the theory, and, I, and I've loved your references. I've stolen them where you talk about relative strength either being like arm wrestling or a race car, and I think those are really good examples. But tell me how you kind of go from the X's and O's to actually implementing that into, into concepts. You know, Maybe give me an example of how you may build either a portfolio or a strategy that, that would be based. And you could even take us back to the early days of Dorsey Wright. You know, how did you guys start to implement some of these ideas? Well, here's the way we do it. Take, for instance, if there were only two stocks in your life, Mip, and you were only allowed to buy one of those stocks at any given time, and let's say it's Pepsi and Coke, 
First thing I would put you through is the Pepsi challenge. I would want to blindfold you and see if you could tell which one was Pepsi and which one was Coke. I can tell. I love Coke. I'm a believer. I hate Pepsi. <laughs> Everybody says that. And I said that. I say that, too. And I was at the Jefferson Hotel one night, and I ordered a Coca-Cola. And she brought the Coke. And I told the lady, I said, this is Pepsi. And she said, no, we only buy Coke products. So I failed the Pepsi test. And I think most people think they can tell the difference. But when you get the two together and they're unmarked, it's very difficult. But let's go one step further and say, in this Pepsi and Coke example, I want to look at the fundamentals. Well, because value uh, investors say, hey, the fundamentals should be strong. And if I went to Merrill Lynch and I looked at the fundamental report of Coke, it's probably a rank number one. And if I went to, let's say, Wells Fargo and I said, let's look, give me your uh, take on Pepsi-Cola, probably rank number one. Two great companies in America. I mean, these, these represent America. So which one do you buy? Who knows? Either one. Both are fundamentally sound. Well, then we, we need to take this one step further. If I want a, a long-term play here, I'm going to create a relative strength chart, and I'm going to do it. The computer will do it automatically in one second. But I'm going to divide the price of Coke by the price of Pepsi. I get a number, and then I put that on the point-and-figure chart. If it's in a sell signal, i.e. a column of O's exceeding a previous column of O's, it's saying own the denominator. If it's in a column of X's on a buy signal where a column of X's exceeds a previous column of X's, it's saying own the numerator. So I'm going to go with that. I have two fundamentally sound companies. I'm now going to look at the relative strength chart on it. The relative strength chart of it is on a sell signal saying own Pepsi. And that would have been the case for the last three or four years, to own Pepsi. The returns on that were significant. You definitely would have wanted to own Pepsi over Coca-Cola. Now, that will change at some point. Recently, that relative strength chart has reversed into a column of X's, suggesting that at least short term, you should own Coke now over Pepsi. So that's how we begin with that. If I'm looking at two things, then you might say, hey, I'm also interested in the whole beverage sector, not just Pepsi and Coke. Well, then that's fine. There are 70 different stocks in the beverage sector, and we would have to do that arm wrestling contest, i.e. create a relative strength chart, one versus every other one. So I'm going to create 1,400 relative strength charts. And by looking at that, I can automatically see who has the most buy signals, who has the most sell signals. And in that beverage sector, I can look at the top five, the top 10, top 20. I can see them right there after doing that basic children's arithmetic. So I go to the, the sector like that. Then a person might say, well, you know what? I'm interested in the U.S. market, everything that trades in America. We can punch a button, and the relative strength charts will come up with a list of the best relative strength there. So that's how we do it. It took us to get on the Internet before we could actually do a lot of charts. I mean, we started with a Tandy 3000 back in 1987. I think that's in the Smithsonian Institute now. It doesn't, doesn't run anything. And now, I mean, we're state-of-the-art, so we can compare and contrast anything, and it automatically happens overnight. So on our system, if you pulled up IBM and you said, I'd like to see the whole sector's relative strength, show me a matrix of them all, you just press a button and it happens automatically. I love it. So as you developed Dorsey over the years, I think you famously said that you and your wife would 
in the very beginning days would be happy. Your goal was to get to $10,000 in your retirement account. And then yeah. you grew Dorsey to a, to a manager with many employees, uh, all sorts of indexes and funds that Dorsey ideas have been based off that are multi-billion dollars now. Talk to me a little bit about it. I know there's there's some questions that listeners would immediately pop into their head. And the first one that I always get, and I would love to hear your perspective of, okay, Tom, I get it. This makes sense. Are you going to tell me that you're totally going to ignore fundamentals? Where does valuation come into play? How does all this impact? So I'd love to hear your, your response. No, I think that's beautiful because fundamentals answer the first question, what should I buy? That answers what? The technical side answers the question when. So as Warren Buffett is a value investor, fantastic. Mr. Buffett, please give me a list of all the value stocks that you think are of value, and I'll put them in our relative strength matrix, and I'll pick out the ones that are ready to move now. So I can be a value investor, but the last thing I'm going to do is be the typical value investor where I buy a stock that's of value, it fits in with, the, with that definition, and I sit back and wait for other people to see that I'm right. And that might be five or 10 years from now. I would rather take the list and find out those stocks that are ready and where demand is beginning to control them now. Again, stocks in motion or things in motion will tend to be in motion until acted upon by an opposite force. Stocks going down that are value stocks, they're fundamentally sound, but they're going down in price. Eventually, something will happen if they stay in business where demand will take control. Well, if I'm watching that, and Yogi Berra once said this, he said, you can observe a lot just by watching. If you keep watching and you set your systems today to watch for you, then you'll see these value stocks begin to change. So I can take any list of anything from Indonesia to Malaysia to Malta to France. It doesn't make any difference to me. You give me the list of the greatest things that you think there's some slice spread, I'll put them into a matrix and we'll find out which ones are the best. So that's the way you want to do it is take the fundamentals and then work from there. And so as you guys started developing ideas and growing the company and as ETFs came on the scene, maybe start to walk us through a couple of your concepts behind some of, I think, what you call smart indexing. And so whether you know, your thoughts about applying these ideas to portfolios. Because so for a really long time, y'all's wheelhouse was educating advisors and providing tools for advisors. But now you also have the ability to say, hey, you know, we'll, we'll partner with various firms like First Trust or NASDAQ, et cetera, where, where you'll say, you know, we can launch products actually based on these. So maybe walk us through some of the ideas and or the evolution of, of Dorsey as a, a business as well. When you talk about exchange-traded funds, Meb, we're the first ones to be involved in it. The Philadelphia Stock Exchange and one Joseph Rosello put together the first exchange-traded fund that was called the SIP, the Cash Index Participation Unit. And what it was, it was on the Dow Jones Industrial Average and, and Standard and Poor's 500. This was the first time that we could actually buy an index, make a trade on an index itself. And I traveled with the Philadelphia Stock Exchange to untold number of venues. And this was so well received, it was unbelievable. They ended up losing it to the Chicago Futures Exchange because what Philadelphia did is they backed this ETF with futures contracts, Dow Futures and S&P Futures. So the Futures Exchange won in court and took that product. It actually traded on the Philadelphia Exchange under symbol BIG 
for Dow Jones and S&P for Standard & Poor's. Well, that was the beginning of the exchange traded fund, and we were there from the beginning. Once the funds began to really gain some strength, that was when Barclays Bank came in, the iShares, put money behind it. Another bank, I think it was State Street Bank, put a lot of money behind it. That's when it had to stay in power. And with the exchange traded funds, that put Dorsey Wright and Associates right in the middle, right in the beginning. iShares came to us, and we rolled out the iShares product throughout the United States. Here's my point, is that we were very early in the exchange-traded fund world, and that was a natural for us to come out with exchange-traded funds because we were already well-versed in it. Our first one that we came out with was the Dorsey Wright Technical Leaders. And again, we used relative strength. And all we did was, if you could do this by hand, is take a thousand stocks and out of those thousand, pick the 100 that had the best relative strength. And then we overweighted some of the top ones, a very minute amount. And that's it, plain and simple. Every quarter, we do the same thing. The interesting thing that you can do with relative strength and momentum, too, that many people listening here with, with 401ks is when you talk about momentum, and I'm going to get back on track in a second, is if you look at your 401k each uh, quarter and you rank them, because they, in your 401k they give you a certain number of funds that they allow you to have, rank them as to performance, best performer to last performer. Take the top five performers and carry them forward to the next quarter. That's momentum. And you'll see that you'll probably outperform. It's the same kind of concept that we're doing here, except we use relative strength. Once a quarter, we're going to reevaluate the positions, put the best 100 in that PDP, and we go forward to the next quarter. And ETFs are totally transparent. So you can see everything that we have in there. There's no sleight of hand, nothing that you can't see. It's all right there. So we have come out with numerous ETFs, all kinds of things that can be mixed and matched and put into a portfolio. So let me let you get me back on track again. I don't want to go too far down on <laughs> No, that's good because, you know, a lot of people, they get so confused with this topic of active versus passive and indexing and smart beta and all these topics. And these probably fall under what category? How would you describe these? Well, smart beta is what they attach the name to. And I don't know anything smart about any of this stuff. It's all mathematical computational, physics, you know, basic, just basic types of things, but they call it smart beta. But you know, what's interesting is, you know, you mentioned Meb, that people are beginning to do get indexing. One of the things that, that we do is smart indexing. And you can read any number of articles today where it shows you statistically that 92% of active managers never outperform the S&P 500. And that's the S&P 500 cap weight. And an investor might sit back and say, wait a minute. So what you're saying then is if I want to be in the top 8% of all investors, I just buy the index? And the answer is yes, absolutely. However, if the index goes down by 20% next year and you have outperformed it by 1%, you still lost in your portfolio. You were down 19%. So it's more to indexing than you might think. And the first question I would ask a person is, do they think that the S&P 500 can outperform the S&P 500? And that might be a question. That says, well, I, well, that's a trick question. Can the S&P 500 outperform the S&P 500? And the answer is absolutely yes. 
there are two different S&P 500s. One is capitalization weighted, which is like Congress. The largest states have the most congressmen, California for one, against Rhode Island, which is a small state, has few congressmen. So there is more voice in California than there is in Rhode Island. However, we have the Senate, too, which is equal weight. Every state gets two senators. Well, we have an S&P 500, the exact same 500 stocks that are equal weighted. So the smallest stock in the S&P 500 has just as much voice as the largest. Well, if you look back to the year 2000, and if I were to ask you, what do you think the performance was in the Standard & Poor's 500 for the last 18 years? This is the S&P 500. Dividends are not reinvested. It's just price. It's up 92% since 1999, December 31st. But if I say, what's the equal weighted S&P, the same 500 stocks that are like the Senate is up 268%. Which one of those would you have preferred to select in your indexing process? So indexing is not so easy. And if you looked at that and you said, well, are there indexes that I could consider? Yes, as a matter of fact, there is. In that same S&P complex, there's the Standard & Poor's 600, which is considered small cap. But these are billion-dollar companies. They're not, they're not little companies. These are big companies. Up 433% during the same period. If I looked at the mid-cap stocks that are bigger than the small cap, but smaller than the Standard & Poor's 500 like IBM and Exxon, that's up 346%. So... If you look at it like that, my next question would be, which index would you prefer to own? I mean, you want to be involved in indexing, but there's a lot of different indexes out there. And with these types of returns, I haven't even gone to a sector. I haven't picked a stock. None of those types of things. So if Mr. Jones is looking at indexing, and there are a number of different indexes that he could select, there's even the Standard & Poor's 500 growth Standard and Poor's 500 value. There's the mid-cap value, mid-cap growth, small-cap value, small-cap growth. I mean, there's all kinds of indexes within the S&P world that he could select from. So it's not so easy. You know, you really would need an advisor who was well-versed in being able to ferret these out. So what we do is we simply take all of the items that you can find, the different type of Standard and Poor's or NASDAQ type, because many exchanges have their own versions of the S&P 500, and put those together, put the uh, QQQs in, which is the NASDAQ index, and you've got a heck of a program there. Put it into a matrix and look at the relative strength, and you calculate relative strength the same way we talked about before. And here you have, might have 11, 12, 13 different items, and you'd want to take the top five, and then once every six months, look back, because this is long-term. This is not overnight types of things. So indexing can be a very interesting way to invest in what I call smart indexing by taking the, all the indexes that are available to you and then using relative strength to determine which ones you're going to be invested in. It's pretty simple, straightforward. And you guys think, I'm sure there's some investors and advisors listening to this, say, okay, I get this. This works with stocks. This works with sectors and styles. This apply also to multi-assets. So could I put together a portfolio of, say, U.S. stocks and gold and bonds and commodities and foreign stocks? Do you think it works cross-asset as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I did that, Meb. I I did a portfolio or a model, and I call it one-stop shop. 
In other words, I put all those things together, just like you mentioned, just like you mentioned. You got gold in there. You've got the uh, emerging market, low volatility, high volatility. You got uh, developed markets, all those together, the types of things that you would want, and it just stays there. Once a year, you uh, rebalance it. Some things may have done really well, and you bring things back to normal once a year, and that's it. There's no changes. So yes, to answer your question, you're dead right, Med. You can do that. And so one of the things I think would surprise a lot of listeners is a lot of these models are actually not all that high-frequency trading. I mean, some of these, I think you've mentioned, they they don't have a whole lot of signals, which for most people is, is a good thing. And so what's the world look like to you today? Any areas in particular, as we look around the landscape, that show the most strength? Well, I'll tell you what, when you look at the market itself and you say, where's the strength? The strength's been in small caps. And that's been for a few years now. In fact, if you even look at the, the numbers I just gave you, and you go back 18 years and you look at the SML, which is your small cap, standard and poor's, 600 small cap, is up the most in the last 18 years. So small cap really has been the play over that long period of time. Have there been times in between there where periodically you should be long the larger cap or the mid cap? Yes, there are periods there. But as far as not trading is concerned and saying what's the long-term picture, small caps have been it. Mid caps have been next. And growth over the last few years, growth has been the play, not value. You have been penalized if you're a value player over the last few years. And that's the problem with value. You can be a value player and you've got value stocks and, and they look great. They're fundamentally sound. They're down and out, but they don't move. They don't move relative. But there'll be a time when value comes in. As a matter of fact, if you go back to the year 2000, in fact, it was October of the year 2000, we saw something amazing take place when we looked at our relative strength charts. All of a sudden, after years of being the place to be, large cap gave way to small cap. This is October of 2000. I remember this distinctly. We wrote it up in our report. Value became the play over growth. Growth was the play for years before that. October of 2000, of year 2000, the play went to value. And equal weight from cap weight. It had been capitalization weighted, i.e. Congress to equal weight Senate. So all you had to do at that point in time in 2000, October 2000, is buy a fund that was equal weighted value and small cap and do nothing for the next 13 years. And you outperformed. So these things will change periodically, but they're long-term in nature. And to answer your question, small cap is still the play and has been for 18 years. So let's say you're, you've been chatting with advisors for decades now, and this podcast has a, a lot of uh, institutional and professional investors. You know, what is sort of your message to them? And even individuals as well, you know, they probably say, look, okay, I get it. I understand it now. I believe this, this message you're preaching. How do most people put it into practice? Do, do some people just go full, all in, cannibal into the pool? I'm going to go relative strength on everything. Do most people say, you know what? I'm going to have my core buy and hold, and then I'm going to do satellite relative strength. What's the kind of advice that what do most people, how do they apply all the, the various Dorsey Wright approaches? 
Well, just like you just mentioned, Matt, there's, there's all kinds of different ways to go about doing it. You know, one of the things is I am a big covered writer. And in other words, I buy stock and sell calls. One third of my net worth is in covered writing. And I, it's in covered writing because it's the right strategy 68% of the time. When you think about a normal distribution, anything you're evaluating, if it's men's heights, women's blood pressures, whatever it is, it's going to fall. 68% will fall within one standard deviation above the blow trend. Therefore, what it's saying is most things in the market are middling. They go up, they come back, they go down, they come up, but they hang around the center. Therefore, covered writing is the right strategy 68% of the time. That's why I do it with one-third of my portfolio. But what stocks do I use? They go through the filter of relative strength, as do their sectors go through the filter of relative strength. We want favored sectors. We want stocks in there that are also favored on a relative strength basis. So I want to put my ducks in a row for stocks that I feel are going to rise in price, all understanding that 68% of the time, they don't. They hang around the middle. So covered writing is a way of doing that, but you're using this relative strength matrices and whatnot to determine what your inventory is going to be with that. Others do, just like you said, take a core position. Here are the core stocks that I own. They're fundamentally sound. I want to own these in the portfolio, and we'll trade around those. There's so many different ways of doing it, but the end result has to be the irrefutable law of supply and demand. Somehow, that has to be worked in there. Let's say you took a funnel and you stuffed that funnel full of all the research on Wall Street, all the talking heads on television, and you stuffed it down that, and, and all, all the fundamental work, and you get down to the tip of the funnel. That's price. That's where price changes. You can take all the fundamental work and stuff it in there, but price has to change at the tip. So why not go directly to the tip? And that's what I have done, and uh, that's what the real smart people a hundred and some years ago have done, which would be Charles Dow in the late 1800s and others along the way from A.W. Cohen to all kinds of different people. Nothing's new under the sun. They pretty much created it themselves back then. We should just have uh, you launch the Tom ETF, which is the covered call writing version of the Dorsey Wright uh, strategies. That'll that'll be next up in the queue. That way you don't have to trade it on your own. <laughs> that, well, that's where we are today, Meb. Where we are today is electronics is, is actually can run a program. You should be able to run a billion-dollar portfolio from a cruise ship with an iPhone. Mm, Plain and simple. Yeah, it's true. Because the systems will automatically do it. When we put together a model, let's say it's a smart indexing model. I don't have to do anything until the system emails me and says, Tom, small cap growth has been replaced by small cap value, let's say. Okay, then I go into the portfolio, I make those changes. But the system automatically told me. What would be one step further is the system should automatically do that. When the change takes place, it will do it. I was just going to say, you know, from someone who's implemented automated investing personally and, and for clients as well, I, I don't know why anyone would ever go back to kind of the shooting from the hip, just discretionarily running a portfolio. It seems like such a nightmare. It, it really is. But the thing about it, when you think in terms of electronics and technology running a portfolio, I don't mean that it's uh, AI, artificial intelligence that's become brilliant and is going to run the portfolio and decide what to do. We saw that with who was it that had the, the um, Russian bonds collapse on them? Long-term capital management. 
Yeah, launching, exactly. We've seen that type of thing happen before. What this is saying, what we're saying is, take what we would do by hand, and that hasn't changed in 30 years. What we do every day, you could do by hand. And we did do it by hand. We used to update 2,500 charts a day by hand. All we do now is let the computer do it. The computer just brings the speed to do what we do that we would have done by hand. The computer does it. So if we would have said, by hand, take out the Standard & Poor's growth and put in the Standard & Poor's value, that would automatically happen by the computer. That's something that we would have said ourselves by hand. The computer just does it automatically. That's where we are today. So it doesn't have to be AI. It can be the same things that we would do automatically ourselves by hand and just tell the computer to do it. It's just like telling the computer now. Let's say I had a portfolio of stocks, and I took every one of those portfolios, and I set an alert. And I told the computer, I want you to alert me if this stock gives a sell signal on this point in figure chart. I want you to alert me if this stock even reverses down into a column of O's on its point figure chart. I want you to alert me if this stock goes below the price of 51. I want you to alert me if the relative strength turns negative versus its sector. You can put all those in there, and the system will, will notify you. So you don't have to watch it. You can go about your business. You can take your son and daughter to the soccer practice and play golf and do what you have to do and let the computer watch your system. You told the computer what to do. You're not sitting back letting the computer just figure it out themselves. Interesting. You know, it's funny. I know you guys have an offering on Folio as well, which is funny to hear about a lot of these automated services in Folio. Man, they've probably been around since the 90s at this point. One of the first automated platforms, brokerage platforms. Is that something you guys see a lot of adoption there as well? People running models on Folio? Yeah, man. As a matter of fact, I have. I've been with Folio for probably 16 years. And they don't do options. So at Folio Investments, that's where I do my modeling. So it remains relatively, let's say, stable where, where at Charles Schwab, I have to watch it every day. I look at my options. I look at the deltas and the changes and the different things. I enjoy that. It keeps me sharp. Over on Folio is where I put a model. And the model's going to run itself, and I'll be notified when there's a change in that model, and then I go make the change. So I may go months at a time with models that are in my portfolio that I do nothing with. But that's the beauty of Folio, of, of uh, well, it used to be called Folio FM, Folio Investments, is you can have things broken up into pieces in the portfolio rather than most brokerages where you have to put it all together, mishmash of everything together. Here you have it broken up into pieces, and you can see each model itself and how it's trading. It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. Talk to me real quick about the behavioral challenges of relative strength investing. You know, we often say that the challenge for a lot of people that do buy and hold is the big bear markets where they're just not doing anything and they watch 10, 20, 40, 50 plus percent of their money go away. Are there some unique challenges to relative strength investing and, and doing kind of the approaches? Yeah, Matt, that is a difficult thing. And that's something that we all are guilty of, let's say because it's human nature. It's fear and greed. If I have a $10 million portfolio, let's say, and that's what I've accumulated all of my life, and I'm looking at retirement five years down the road, and I go through a 2008, and I've been told, don't worry, be happy, because we're diversified. And 2008, everything went down together. 
nothing was diversified. The margin clerk sold everything, and you found yourself down 40% in your portfolio. That's $4 million gone from your $10 million. That's going to change the way you look at things. That's why in our exchange-traded funds now, we've taken it one step further. Take, for instance, our first Trust 5, the FV is the symbol. That went to $5 billion. Now, we had $5 billion in that ETF. We now have gone to FVC. The C means cash. Well, when you think in terms of a matrix, and we're going to do that relative strength calculation arm wrestling contest with X numbers of sectors in the First Trust 5, they've already been, the sectors have been selected by First Trust in their Alphadex way of looking at fundamentals, and we put cash in there. Now, to us, cash is the symbol MNYMKT, money market. MNYMKT is a symbol to us, just like IBM, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, anything. And we put that in the mix. So if MNYMKT, which is money market, begins to rise in that portfolio, once it gets to a certain point within the rules, portfolio begins to go to cash. So it automatically happens. So this is the kind of thing that I think investors are going to want to look at. We're now coming out with our, our ETFs that we have with cash in them so that it can automatically begin to be defensive when it needs to be. Yeah, I think when you have that sort of 2008-9 environment, which is sort of a deflationary bear market where everything's going down really except for bonds and cash, that's a, a really useful feature that I think is pretty important. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, you've been in the business 20, 30, 40 years. 45 years. 45 years, my goodness. Um, and you're still at it. What's got you excited? What do you guys, y'all have some of my favorite people in the world or Dor Dorsey Wright on the research side. What are you guys working on these days? Anything in particular that's got you excited? Maybe you guys have started publishing relative strength on the cryptocurrencies. What's, uh, what's, what, what's in the labs over there? Well, in the laboratory, you're right, is crypto. We began to make a move into crypto. We have programmers here, and one in particular that I think is the premier in crypto. It's a natural. We're putting the charts in the system right now. We're getting all the charts up, and we're going to become experts in crypto as best you can in that area. If you ask me today, what's crypto and what coin should I be in, I couldn't tell you. But once we have the charts in, that's where we're going to be able to watch and see which ones are doing well, which ones aren't. And this is going to be a work in progress because crypto reminds me of back in the 70s when I first began to become well-versed in options. Options were so brand new in the 1970s, none of us knew anything about them. There were no books written on the subject. And options were like crypto now. We had to learn them, and we had to learn them by hand. Now options are so mainstream, if you just go to tastytrade.com, I mean, you can learn everything you want to know about options. And that's on YouTube. So crypto is the same way. You're beginning to get crypto management companies, crypto advisory companies. And I think this subject is here to stay. No question about it. So we're going to become experts in it and what we do. You know, it's funny because is there, I can't think of an area that would be more uniquely suited to relative strength than currencies that have literally no no fundamentals it's just driven by price so there's probably no better application for your relative strength algorithms than applying them to crypto sadly though year to date and and this week is a great example the, the there's going to be a lot of relative strength to the downside these a lot of these things have been going straight down but who knows it'll, it'll be fun to watch yeah it's not for the faint of heart meb 
I'll tell you, and you know, people that get into it, you want to put a small amount into it. And I mean, and I mean a small amount, not, not something where you put hundred thousand, 200,000 into it, unless you've got a billion, but you want to put a small amount, get your feet wet and better get your feet wet. Once we get our charts up and we're able to begin doing some advising on it, but it's a new frontier, it's a new frontier, lots of risks and not unlike the option business back in the seventies, but now the option business has become fully realized. You know, it's funny. We often say the same thing. I say, look, you want to put a portion of the global market portfolio, let's call it 200 trillion that crypto represents. That means it's 0.1%. So if you got a million bucks, you're allowed to put in $1,000. And you, I have you no go. problem with that. If you want to reflect the global market portfolio, if you got 10 million bucks, fine, you can put in 10 grand. Other than that, unless you're really high net worth, it's probably a little too risky. Put your glasses on to the future. Um, all right. So we've talked about crypto, a little bit about automated. I mean, the world's changing so fast. We essentially have many platforms now that have zero fee commissions like Robinhood and others. Yeah. Folio, you have others. We just got notice of our first uh, market cap weighted zero fee fund. As you look out to the horizon of the future of investment management, of product development, anything in our world, is there anything that you kind of are thinking about in general or, uh, you know, predict the way things are going to change? Or is it just more kind of more of the same? What's on, what's on your brain? Well, for us, we're always trying to take that step forward to automation. And I don't, again, I need to preface that is automation doing what we would do by hand, what we already do. It's just that the computer allows us to do it faster and allows us to do it while we're asleep and that type of thing. I'm a part owner of DIF Brokerage in Portugal, DIF.pt, Papa Thomas, and that's a, a white label of Saxo Bank. Well, I do all my developed market models at DIF, and the way we do them is I'll simply tell them, I'll email them and say, I want to own, let, let's just take this out of the air. I want to own France. I want to own Germany. I want to own Switzerland. I want to own Sweden in Swedish Coronas. I want to own uh, London in British pounds, Switzerland in Swiss francs, Germany in euros, France in euros, and buy my models. Okay, so we'll split up your money and we'll buy those models. Now, the models automatically run them. They have access to our system here, and our system then alerts them whenever there's a change in a model. So the only thing that happens to me is I get an email from them at DIFF saying, this took place. This particular stock fell too low on, its, on the matrix and was replaced by this one. They automatically do it for me. Then they notify me because we always have money market in their cash. If cash overtakes the model on that arm wrestling contest, if cash wins, uh, we, only, we only have two symbols, the model and cash. If cash wins, I automatically go to cash. That's simple. But they notify me. So I could be on a cruise ship. And my portfolios are automatically running. My international portfolios are running. And I just simply get notified when a change takes place. Now, if you took the traders out who are notifying me and let a computer do it, then I'm totally automated. So that, that's coming. I love it. So as we think about, I think I saw you mentioned that you're going to get together with um, our common friend, Ralph Acampora, potentially, and some other of these old school guys yes. to talk markets. What, what are you guys going to be talking about? What's the, what's the plans there? Yeah, it's going to be the Richmond Forum here in Richmond. And there are five of us that we have over 200 years experience in the markets. Ralph Acampora is one. 
one of the great technicians. He's the considered the godfather of technical analysis. Great friend of mine. He speaks at our broker institutes. He'll be up here in November. Myself, Tony Fadul, who was the head of Federated Marketing and Distribution and Development of Funds they have. Skip Morton, he actually runs my municipal bond portfolio. This is the guy. He's my age, so he's got some age to him. He's been around his business 45 years. He's a specialist in bonds. And also Joseph Rosello, who is the past uh, CEO of the National Stock Exchange. Joseph is the person who brought the first exchange-traded fund to market. And Joseph is going to explain that, how they came about that process, how the first ETF came. The Philadelphia Stock Exchange is the one that brought that. Now it's owned by the NASDAQ, has bought the Philly Exchange. In fact, Joseph is the first person to bring foreign currency option trading to the Philadelphia Exchange. That was considered never being able to be done. He did that. But he'll be able to talk about flash crash and what happens with the flash crashes and how the exchanges came about changing the way they look at things. It's going to be interesting. So it'll be an evening of five of us giving you 200 years experience in the markets. I love it. I love it. That's awesome. Last question. We've kept you long enough. As you look back into all the thousands, probably tens of thousands of trades you made investments, is there one that stands out as the most memorable? It could be positive. It could be negative. Is there anything that just burns seared in your memory as the most memorable investment or trade? Boy, that's a tough question because you brought me back now, all of a sudden, 45 years of business is running through my mind. I can think of one that is so memorable to me, and it was important that this happened. It was Genentech. When Genentech first came public, I had a friend who was in desperate need of money. He and his family had fallen on difficult times, and Genentech was coming. And I was able to get 10 shares of Genentech and I gave it to him and I said, somehow I need you to come up with the cost of these 10 shares because legally you have to do that. You have to pay for it. But by the end of the day, I'll be selling these shares and sending you the difference. And Genentech came and I can't remember how much it went up, but went up significantly. And I was able to significantly help this family who was in desperate need. I love it. Genentech, one of the classic biotech success stories of the past handful of decades. I'll never forget that. All right. That's awesome. Tom, it's been an absolute pleasure today. Where do people find more info? If they want to follow you, want to follow everything that Dorsey Wright does, what's the best places? Well, one place that you can get a lot of information is just go on YouTube or Google and type in Tom Dorsey, Dorsey Wright and Associates, or just Dorsey Wright and Associates, and you'll see a lot of things. Otherwise, on our webpage, we're at www.dorsey.com. We do a podcast every Wednesday that's free to anyone. So I would uh, alert anyone to listen to that podcast because we give a lot of information in that um, podcast. We're at number 600. So we're one of the oldest podcasters around. We're at about 666 podcasts, uh, weekly podcasts. We've been doing this a long time. So tune in and listen to that. But anyone that wants to take a free trial of our service can do that. You know, we're, we're pretty visible people. We hide in the open. I love it. Tom Dorsey, thank you so much for taking the time today. Meb, thank you very much, buddy. Listeners, it's been a blast. We'll put all the show notes at mebfavor.com forward slash podcast. Links to Tom books, YouTube, podcast, all sorts of good stuff, funds, everything else. Subscribe to the show on iTunes. 
Stitcher, Breaker, my new favorite, Overcast, anywhere podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing.